All right, Lord God, thank you. Thank you for bringing us here this afternoon. Um, thank you again that we have the opportunity to read your word and to learn from you. And I ask that you would speak to us this morning, that you would teach us more about you, Lord, and that we would, uh, they would leave here more aware of your love and uh, more in tune with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, uh, this will be our last week before Christmas. Uh, so, and then we'll, we'll probably have a break through January, through the summer holidays. So, this is probably the last, like, at least official youth until February. So, ideally, I want to finish Romans 8 today. But I kind of messed up my timing a bit. And um, we're three weeks in and we're only about halfway through. So, we have to move a little bit quicker today. But that's okay, because not very many of you, so we should probably get through quicker. Um, okay, so very briefly, chapter 8 so far. David, when last were you here? Okay, so you were here for the start of, for the first two sessions of, well, first one. Of, <laughs> true. Yeah. Romans. What was the first verse of Romans 8? Do you remember what it was? What it said? I don't remember, but I can read it. Okay, read it. Read it. Read it. Sure. Yeah. What does it say? <laughs> oh, I hate reading it. It's all right, you just talk. Well, let me just find out where it goes to real quick. Right. There is therefore now come... There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. All right, that was it. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. That's right. Cool. Um, so that's the first thing that Paul said to us, is that based on everything he said so far, the first seven chapters of Romans, the conclusion is there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can't be condemned. Right, and then he went on to say that like we share Jesus' righteousness, which is part of the reason why we can't be condemned, um, and that through we share Jesus' righteousness and we share Jesus' spirit, and that was a really important thing. That Jesus, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, lives in each of us, makes us one with each other, makes us one with Jesus, and it makes us. And this is really key. I think last week, it makes us children of God. That we've been born again through God's spirit. That we're not just born of flesh, but we're also born of spirit. We have fleshly fathers, earthly fathers, biological fathers. We also have a, bio, a, a spiritual father who is God because his spirit is in us. Um, not only that, we've been given the opportunity as children of God to inherit from our father. What do we inherit from God? Righteousness. We've been given righteousness. We share righteousness with Jesus. What do we inherit? Eternal. We do inherit eternal life. We inherit lots of things, but one of the things that we kind of just said because it's mentioned in, in chapter 4 is we inherit the world, whatever that means. Um, but, but 
Our justification, there's no if, right? You've been justified. Jesus has done everything necessary. There's no condition on that. Uh, but there is a condition on inheriting. It says... The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, then heirs, namely heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. So there's like a condition there, right? There's no condition on our salvation, on our justification. But there is a condition placed on our inheritance. Do we suffer with Jesus? Which we talked about last week. Um, so if you're going to follow Jesus, he tells us you have to pick up your cross, right? So there's a cross involved. He says, if you want to find life, you have to lose it. So there's loss involved. There's suffering involved in following Jesus. So the question is, is it worth it? Is the suffering involved in following Jesus worth it for the reward for the inheritance? And Paul's conclusion was, verse 18, I consider that our present suffering, the suffering that's involved in suffering with Jesus, cannot even be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. So answer is, is it worth it? At least as far as Paul's concerned, and he'd gone through a fair amount of suffering in his life, as far as he was concerned, it was absolutely worth it. Cool. Okay. Uh, so then, so then we continue. So he says, uh, it can't be compared to the coming glory. And basically now Paul's going to talk a little bit more about what that glory looks like. So who wants to read verses 19 to 22? For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Okay, so it's a very interesting few verses. Uh, we're obviously looking forward to this coming glory, right? When um, what Paul said in verse 18, this coming glory that's going to be revealed to us. We're looking forward to that. But apparently it's not just us. In 1 Peter, there's a very interesting passage or an interesting verse. He says, Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that would come to you searched and investigated with the greatest care. They tried to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he prophesied about the sufferings of the Christ and his subsequent glory. They were shown that they were not serving themselves but you in regards to the things now announced to you through those who proclaimed the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. 
things that angels long to look into. That's interesting, right? That's a bit weird. He's saying, basically, the prophets who prophesied about the coming Messiah tried really hard to figure out when is this Messiah coming? And they concluded that it wasn't for them, it was for us, right? It was going to happen in the future. The, what's going to happen in the future? Well, the stuff that's now being explained to us through the gospel by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he says that this gospel is something that angels long to look into. That the word that's translated long to look into is literally to like stoop over and to investigate really carefully, right? So apparently the angels want to understand what this gospel is all about. Which is kind of strange, but also kind of cool. And Paul basically says the same goes for creation. That creation itself is eagerly waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. For the day that the, that the, that the sons of God are revealed. Who's that? Who are the sons of God? I think it's anyone who becomes and becomes who receives the spirit of adoption. So I think that's us pretty much. Yeah, it's us. We're the sons of God. So that's that's what they're looking forward to is the day that uh, everybody who's led by the spirit of God, because that's what it says. Those who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God um, and who have received the spirit of adoption, which we also looked at last week. That's us, but we haven't been revealed in glory yet, yeah? As John says in 1 John 3, he says, Dear friends, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when the Messiah comes, when the Christ is revealed, he will be, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. So, we are sons of God now, but it's not so obvious, right? For now, we're still inhabiting these sons of man bodies. But at some point in time, when? What? Coincident with what? The with the return of Christ. When Jesus comes back, it says we're then going to be revealed for who we really are. Not these sons of man bodies. We're going to be revealed as sons of God, which is pretty amazing, pretty cool. Um, and apparently creation, the world, is longing for that day. Now, it's interesting that the, the word that's translated waits is used seven times in the New Testament. It's always interesting when things show up in seven. Um, it's used three times in this chapter by Paul. It's used once in the book of Galatians when it talks about us waiting for the hope of righteousness. And then it's used three other times. These are the three other times it's used. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, For you were made rich in every way in him, in all your speech and in every kind of knowledge, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you wait for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we also eagerly wait for our Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform these humble bodies of ours into the likeness of His glorious body. 
So we're talking about by means of that power by which he is able to subject all things to himself. And then in Hebrews 9, it says, Indeed, just as people are destined to die once and after that to be judged, so the Christ, the Messiah, was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to bring salvation to those who eagerly wait for him. Do you see the pattern? What are we waiting for? Jesus. Yeah, each time, right? We're, it's always used in connection with waiting for the day that Jesus comes. That's what we're waiting for, the day that Jesus returns. That is the day that we will receive the righteousness that's been given to us by faith, like receive it so that we can see it. Uh, that's the day when we will be revealed as the sons of God in glory, um, when our bodies will be transformed and that's the day that we will be like Jesus because we will see him as he is. And so that's the day that creation is eagerly longing for. Why is creation longing for that day? Because it's grinding under the weight of sin. Yeah, so he says, for, for the creation was subjected to futility. Anybody know what futility means? <laughs> That's a different translation of the same word. What does vanity mean? Meaningless. Yeah. So, so normally futility basically means pointlessness or meaninglessness. It achieves nothing, is the idea. Um, or perhaps... Perhaps a different way of looking at it is that it, it no longer achieves the purpose for which it was made, right? It's become useless. So creation was created very good to glorify its creator and to bless his creation, but it's no longer very good. So it's not achieving its purpose anymore. But there's something that I found quite interesting is that in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but it was translated into Greek around some debate, but about 300 to 150 BC. So long before Jesus, the entire Old Testament had been translated into Greek, which means there's very little like confusion about what the Old Testament, what's right and what's wrong in the Old Testament, because we actually have it in a whole other language. Um, completed. Anyway, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word that is translated futility here is the word that's used to translate a Hebrew word that was hevel. And if you joined us when we were doing online, when we looked at the wisdom books, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, Hevel showed up in the book of Ecclesiastes again and again and again. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's translated vanity or meaningless. So Ecclesiastes 1, the words of the teacher, son of David. Anybody know who that was? Most likely Solomon. Solomon, king of Jerusalem. He says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. And that word is hevel. And we said that that's really like a figurative meaning for the word hevel. Literally, hevel is the word for smoke or vapor. 
And so it's not so much that it has no meaning, but it's more like the meaning is never clear. It's never, it's never obvious what, what the meaning is. Um, like smoke, life is confusing. It's disorienting. It's uncontrollable. And sometimes it makes you cry. I've been sitting around a fire pit much recently. I was struggling the other day. But so the point is like, it's a, it's a struggle. It's confusing. But and ultimately, it's hard to know what's going on, and that's that's the picture that's given for this word. And so, Paul says that creation was subjected to this futility, but it didn't. It wasn't subjected willingly, not because it wanted to be, nor because it had done anything wrong necessarily, but it was subjected because it was God's will that it be subjected to futility to this frustration and meaninglessness and we're not really told why but we are told that God did did it in hope in the knowledge that it would ultimately that creation would ultimately be set free from that futility and set free from this bondage of decay because that's where he goes on he says for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of God who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. So that then becomes an interesting term. The bondage of decay. What is that? Yeah, you're about, well, what's decay? Rot. Rot. Yeah, disintegrating falling apart, right? So there's this concept in physics called the second law of thermodynamics and it states that, do you know? Everything tends towards entropy, chaos, I guess so. Yeah, so a state of everything being in the same phase of motion, sort of. Yeah. It's basically the idea that as long as there's like gradients of energy, you can, you can do something, things can happen, but once everything becomes uniform, like for example, temperature, if you've got hot and cold, then there's a gradient, right? And, and the air will actually be moving and then you can drive turbines and stuff like that. But if the air is all just lukewarm, nothing happens. And the idea, and, and that, that state of Typically, disorder, randomness, uncertainty is termed entropy. And that over time, everything in the world basically tends towards the state of entropy, of disorder, uncertainty, and uh, uselessness, basically. And that's, that essentially is the bondage of decay. Basically, everything in life is slowly breaking down. Left to itself, everything degrades, everything decays. Everything becomes more disorganized. Our bedrooms get more messy. Our gardens overgrown. Our cars rust. And our bodies break down. Um, and as we mentioned last week, even DNA is, is corrupted over time, right? Um, by mutations, by copying, copying errors. That's true at an individual level, through our lives, our DNA is becoming less and less 
Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's accumulating more and more errors. It's becoming more and more corrupted by errors. And it's true over generations. From generation to the next, each generation has more noise in their DNA, in their DNA signal. Um, and so even our DNA is slowly becoming less sense and more nonsense. Do you think God created the world that way? No. He didn't create it with this bondage of decay. This is, this is all a part of the curse that he pronounced on Adam and Eve when they sinned, or that he pronounced on that he pronounced after Adam and Eve sinned. So in, in Genesis 3, he said, But to Adam, he said, Because you obeyed your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. In painful toil, you will eat it of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, but you will eat the grain of the field. By the sweat of your own brow, you will eat food until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you will return. And so that is when God subjected creation to futility, to meaninglessness, to decay, to this bondage of decay. It was when he cursed the ground because of Adam, cursed the earth. So this is like, this is incredibly important to understand. For many, many years, people have essentially looked at the world around them, seen the apparently meaningless suffering that, Suffering and tragedy that seems fundamental to life on earth and have concluded that there cannot be a, a good or loving God. There was a Greek philosopher, Epicurus, who lived about 300 BC, shortly before Plato. And he is said to have formulated this dilemma, technically a trilemma maybe, but... It's a dilemma. He says, either God is good, but unable to prevent evil, in which case he is not all powerful. Or God is able to prevent evil, but chooses not to, in which case he is not good. Or God is good and able to prevent evil, but then why is there evil? The answer is what? The answer is because this is not the world that God created. The world that God created was good. There was no evil. There was no death. There was no decay. But all of that changed when a part of his creation, arguably the most important part of his creation, chose to reject God and to reject his word. Mankind was the pinnacle of God's creation, right? He was created to have eternal life. What is eternal life? Knowing God and knowing Christ. Yeah. We, we were created to know God, to know Jesus. We were created to love and to be loved by God. But can, can, you, can you force somebody to love you? It's not love, right? Whatever that is, it's not love. And so if God's purpose for creating us 
was to have a relationship of love with us. We had to, we had to be a part of that relationship voluntarily. Yes? Because otherwise, it's not love. Whatever it is, it's not love. Yeah? And so, God gave man the freedom to choose whether he wanted to be in that relationship with God. And with that freedom, he chose to reject God. So now what? Well, it wasn't unforeseen, right? God knew this would happen when he created the world. And he had a plan to restore us to him. But the first thing he needed to do was ensure that that we weren't stuck permanently in that broken state. And so we talked about this last week. The first thing he did was remove Adam and Eve from that garden that he'd created. And he did what? After that, I think. But after he removed them from the garden. Before, that was before he removed them from the garden. He clothed them and he sent them out of the garden and then he did something. He put angels at the gate to guard it. He put an angel at the gate to guard it. Why? So they couldn't go back in. Why? Because there was a tree of eternal life in there. Yeah, he said to prevent them from, like, to guard the way to the tree of life. And at least as far as it makes sense in my mind, the problem was that in some sense that tree of life gives makes them eternal, right? Or maintains their eternal state. And for them to be eternally fallen would be a disaster, right? And so they had to be removed and prevented from accessing that. The reason he didn't want them to be eternal wasn't because he didn't want them to be eternal. It's that he didn't want them to be eternally fallen. Yeah. So he didn't want their condition to be permanent. And I mentioned this last week. I don't completely understand it, but there's something about death that allows renewal. As long as the creation was good, no death was needed. Um, it could be permanent. But once sin became a part of our world, God needed this world to die, to be destroyed so that it could ultimately be recreated anew. Um but this time good, and this time permanently good. Perhaps because this time it will be inhabited by people who have, of their own free will, chosen to be there, to be with him, you know? Which in, in, a, in a sense, Adam and Eve never had that choice. They were just created and placed there. Anyway, so the point is, all of this brokenness that we see, this bondage of decay and this futility that is such a fundamental part of the world that we live in was not a part of the universe as God originally created it. But it is, it is in some way a part of the means by which God is ultimately going to save us. And so God subjected the creation to fertility, not because of anything it had done, not because there was anything wrong with it, but because it was necessary if we were to be saved. But this all assumes that the... So, yeah, this is kind of interesting. So, 
so far we've been talking as though futility and bondage of decay mean the same thing. That it's talking about the same thing. That it's talking about the brokenness of the world. Yeah? Which is why I found verses 20 and 21 kind of confusing in this translation and in some other translations. In the NIV it says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Okay, so that's fairly standard across the different ones. And then it says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to, to decay. And then the NET is very similar. Um... They both basically say the same thing, that the creation was subjected to frustration in hope that it would be liberated, freed from the bondage of decay. But if that's the same thing, if the futility and the bondage of decay is the same thing, to me that doesn't make any sense. Uh, you, creation is subjected to futility or frustration so that it can be set free from that Futility and frustration. Does that make sense? Like, it doesn't make sense to say that the world was cursed so that it could be set free from the curse. Yes? Well, if you don't want it to be under the curse, don't curse it, right? That's sort of, it's a bit weird. New King James is slightly different. It says, uh, for the earnest expectation of creation, eagerly waits the revealing of men. So that's fine. Sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of one who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So here it's the, for the creation was subjected to futility, because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption. And so... That's slightly different. That makes it sound like God was willing to subject it to this futility and bondage of decay because he knew that ultimately it was, it was going to be freed from it. Yeah, which makes a bit more sense. But I saw something else that to me made the most sense of all. So essentially what you have here is a parenthesis brackets. Yes, and in NIV and NET, What's in brackets is not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. So the flow of thought is, for the creation was subjected to futility in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage of decay, which to me doesn't make that much sense. And then in New King James Version, in hope is included in the brackets. So now it's, for the creation was subjected to futility because the creation itself will be delivered. Yes? But what I saw, a commentary that I saw said, actually, no, basically all of verse 20 is brackets. So what it actually reads like is this. For the creation eagerly awaits for the revelation of the sons of God in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay. This is the reason why it's looking forward to the day that the sons of God is revealed, because then in hope. Remember, we've talked about this, like in the Bible, hope is not like wishful thinking. It's something that you know is going to happen and you're looking forward to it. And so it's looking forward to this day because it knows on that day, it will also be set free from the bondage of decay. And then in here, we basically have brackets. Why is it needing to look forward to, the, to this day? It's because it has been subjected to futility, to the bondage of decay, 
not willingly, but by the one who sent it. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. So I thought that was quite cool. Uh, yeah. Then Paul goes on to say, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers together until now. In Greek, the word that's trans this like groaning and suffering, it's not a groaning and suffering leading to death. Like you're dying and that's why you're groaning and suffering. It's usually associated with childbirth. It's like you're in labor. So it's groaning and suffering. Uh, what? It's pain that's associated with coming life rather than pain that's associated with coming death. So it's pain where you're like, you're looking forward to something, but in the meantime, it's a struggle kind of thing. So that's what's going on here. Creation is yearning. Creation itself, the world itself, is apparently yearning for that future, that future world, um, that future life that God has promised to all of us. Um, Isaiah describes this time really nicely. It says, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion will graze together as a small child leads them along. The cow and the bear will graze together. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. The baby will play over the hole of a snake. The infant will put his hand into the nest of a serpent. They will not injure or destroy on my entire holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of God, just as the waters completely cover the sea. So that's the time that creation is apparently looking forward to that's going to come with the revelation of the sons of god okay so creation is groaning but creation is not the only one groaning anybody read these verses Twenty three to 25 cool. not only so but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we were saved but hope that is seen is no hope at all who hopes for what is, who hopes for what he already has but if we hope for what we do not yet have we wait for it patiently okay so it's not just creation that's groaning we also who have the first who've received the first fruits of the Spirit are apparently groaning too. Not only this, but we ourselves also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption. So firstly, what are first fruits? That's like the first of your profits or income. Yeah. And we talked about this quite a lot when we were studying the book of Ruth, but back in those days, you're farming, you've growing crops and um, the first fruits were the first stalks of grain to ripen, right? And they'd ripen often quite early and then the full harvest comes later and uh, the Jews were commanded to give those first fruits, those first grains that ripen to God. Same with like the first uh, lambs that were born, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And so those first stalks that ripened early in the season were a promise of the full harvest that was going to come later. And so in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then when Christ comes, those who belong to him. And so, um, in other words, Christ was the first to rise, Jesus was the first to rise, um, but the fact that he rose from the dead is a promise that we're all ultimately going to rise to the dead rise from the dead later. He was the first fruits, the first example of the resurrection. Yeah? Anyway, so that's the idea here. We've been given the Holy Spirit. But that's just the first fruits. It's just the taste of what it means to be the child of God. And so we find ourselves groaning, longing, yearning for the day when we will be transformed into the image of Jesus. Because for now, all we have is this like first hint, this first taste, just the first fruits. But like I said, for now, we're still waiting. This hasn't happened yet. That's why it's hope. Because as he says, you don't hope for what you already have. You just enjoy it, right? Um, but for us, it's still a hope. Not one that we have any doubt about. Because like I said, hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. It's not something that we're hoping will happen. It's something we know will happen. And it gives us something. It gives us the strength, I guess, to persevere through whatever we're experiencing because we know what's ahead of us. We have that hope. Okay, verses 26 and 27. Anyone want to read? Are we there? Six. 26 and 27. Yes. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Okay, so creation is groaning, we are groaning, and apparently the Spirit inside of us is groaning as well. Which is quite a lot of groaning and longing for the day when all this groaning will be over and we will finally see God and know God as He really is. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, For now we see only a reflection in a mirror, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know in full, even as I am fully known. So that's the day that we're all longing for, including the spirit that's in us, apparently. Um, in the meantime, it says the spirit helps us in our, helps us in our weakness. For starters, for starters, he prays for us. Um, those things that we can't even put into words and like we don't always know what to pray. And so it says that the Spirit prays for us, which is quite cool. And sometimes there's just like so much you don't even know where to start. And there again, the Spirit prays on our behalf, which is really cool. Um, but even more than that, it says that the Spirit intercedes for us with these inexpressible groanings. What does it mean to intercede? To mediate, to talk on someone's behalf. Yeah, he's pleading, he's pleading on our behalf, right? Explaining our circumstances and asking God to have mercy on us or to help us in whatever way we need help. 
In the Psalms, David wrote, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on his faithful followers. For he knows what we are made of. He realizes we are made of dust. So God knows what we're made of and he has compassion on us. But just in case there's any confusion, the Spirit of God, which is living in us, he knows what we're made of, right? Like he's literally living this life with us. And so he can explain our circumstances, explain things to God even better than, well, if God is lacking in any way in, in his ability to have compassion for us, for understanding what's going on in our lives, the Spirit of God in us can explain that to him. And then you have Jesus as well, who came and lived in the flesh, and he also knows what it's like, was tempted in every way, etc., etc. Um, so he knows too, and he's also pleading for us, which we'll see later. So again, pretty cool and very encouraging. Then, Verses 28 to 30. Sweet. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Okay, so verse 28. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. It's probably one of the most encouraging verses in the entire Bible and arguably the most important words are the first three and we know this is something that you need to know and believe this is our hope our certain expectation our comfort when the skies are dark and and our lives are hard that God works all things together for good not some things, all things. Now, again, we've talked about this before, but that does not mean that, that, our, that all of our lives will be good. It's not what it says. There are plenty of things that absolutely will not be. Nor does it mean that like everything happens for a reason, that God has a purpose behind everything you experience in your life. I don't think that's exactly true. Uh, God has given people freedom and very often the terrible things that you experience in your life are a consequence of other people exercising the freedom that they have. So I don't think that necessarily everything that happens in your life is God's will for your life in that sense. But this is the promise that whatever happens and why ever it happens in your life, God is able to use it for good, to work it together for good in your life. Does that make sense? There's something else that's quite important to notice there. It says that God will work all things together for good, right? If you, again, if you remember 
when we were looking at Job, the video that we watched on Job, it talked about like the wisdom of God and that we may see hints of that working together for good in our lives. I certainly have. But there are also lots of circumstances in our lives that we may never be able to see how this worked out for good, right? Which was certainly Job's experience. Our lives and God's wisdom are far more complicated than that. Um, but we do know that when we look back on our lives from God's perspective, from eternity, then we will see like this beautiful tapestry of our life all woven together and the grays and the blacks will be just as important as the blues and the yellows and pink just as important to the picture and to who we are and to who god has made us to be so okay we know that all things work together for good for who what does it say for those who love god which like that's some deep, deep water that we could spend a long, long time wading through, immersed in. Because I would say that if there is one principle above all others in Scripture that characterizes the nature of God and His purpose for creation, it's love. But we don't have time to go into too deeply into that today because we want to get to the end of chapter 8. But here's the key point that this isn't some like this isn't some law of karma or some principle of uh, some inherent principle in the world that says that everything works out for the best. This is a promise from God for those who have willingly, consciously, and voluntarily placed their lives in Jesus' hands. If you love God and you and you have put your trust in Jesus then he will work all things together for good in your life. But there's something else that characterizes those who love God. They are also called according to his purpose. Called according to his purpose. That idea of being called uh, is also something that shows up throughout the New Testament. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, He is the one who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not based on our works, but on his own purpose and grace, granted to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but now made visible through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Thessalonians he who calls you is trustworthy and he will in fact do this. Second Thessalonians, he called you to the salvation through our gospel so that you may possess the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in first Peter, Peter says, and after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. This is also something that Jesus talked about. In John, it says, uh, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that remains, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. So apparently we didn't choose Jesus. Jesus chose us. 
Earlier in John, um, Jesus said, Everyone whom the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never send away. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Everyone who hears and learns from the Father comes to me. So here's the question. Does everybody have the opportunity to be redeemed or only those who have been chosen by God? I would say everyone. So what does that mean? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And you haven't chosen me, I've chosen you. It means everyone's got the opportunity to come to Christ, but only those who the Lord draws can come, will come. So then, it gets difficult, right? Yeah. Yeah. And this is this is an issue that's caused a lot of debate and discomfort in the church for two thousand years, basically. Um, and it's certainly, it's not something that, like, I feel that I understand well enough to discuss in too much depth yet, something I need to give a lot more thought to, but for what it's worth, I I feel like it might be kind of a distraction. Um, like maybe it's an issue that arises when you're trying to fit, uh, like eternal realities into our finite world, but it's not really something maybe we need to be worrying about from this side because the real question for everybody is do you have a choice like now do you have the choice to come to jesus to trust him with your life and i i think that for anybody who's asked that question the answer is yes they do have that choice right we all have the opportunity and choice to trust jesus If when we're finally looking back from eternity, we look back and we find that we made that choice because God had chosen us, at that point, like it's kind of just academic, right? We're already there. We already made that choice. Like, yeah, I don't know if that kind of makes sense. It's pointless now to wonder whether you are, whether you've been chosen and therefore can come to Jesus. All you've got to do is come to Jesus. Well, there's a sense in which if you just come to Jesus, then you'll find that you were one of the ones who were chosen kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Don't really know. But yeah, but like I say, my sense is that for us now today, in our lives, we all do have a choice. What that will look like when we're looking back from eternity, I don't know. Maybe then this will make sense. But I don't believe that that anybody's in a position where they don't have the opportunity to come to Jesus. Anyway, Paul goes on and gets even more down that track, say. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God who are called according to his purpose because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son 
that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So this is more of the same like mind stretching of what's going on here. When did God foreknow us? What does it mean to foreknow? To know beforehand. To know beforehand. So when was it? When beforehand did God know us? Before we existed. What does that mean? Before he was there before we existed, and he knew it was going to happen. Were we? No. He knew us though. Yeah. Because he he's going to create us. And he's an eternal God who can know everything. And he's outside of time. <laughs> In Ephesians 1, it says, For he, Jesus, God, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. I don't even know what that means. Um, but apparently before God created the world, before he created us, or at least before we existed, he knew us and chose us, which is strange, but cool. There's a preacher called Charles Spurgeon who apparently said, it's a, it's a good thing God chose me before I was born because if he surely would not have afterwards. But anyway, it's more than that. God didn't only foreknow us. He foreknew us and having known us beforehand, he predestined us. So the moment you were born, your calling and your ending, your destiny was set, right? What ending is that? What are we predestined for? To be conformed to the image of his son, that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So that is God's goal, his purpose in all, of, in all that he is doing. That we be conformed, that we be molded into the image, shape and nature of his son. His son. Why? That his son would be the first brother among many brothers and Basically didn't want Jesus to be an only child. <laughs> right? But that he would be the firstborn, the oldest sibling of many children. Back to Ephesians. He did this by predestining us to adoption as his legal heirs through Jesus Christ, according to the will of his pleasure, to the bleh, to the praise of the glory of his grace that he has freely bestowed on us in his dearly loved son. So he predestined us to adoption, to be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus. So we're chosen, called and predestined to be children of God. And then Paul says, and those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So that is like the eternal chain of our salvation. Those God foreknew, those he knew beforehand, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified, he declared them righteous. And those he justified, he glorified. Notice the tense. What's the tense of those words? All of the way through, right? All the way through. So God foreknew us, fine. 
It's in the past. He knew us beforehand, past tense. And he predestined us before we were born. Fine, okay. And he called us. We've been called. Fine, it's past tense. And he's justified us. Again, we've talked about that. Past tense, done. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, you're justified. And he also glorified us. Past tense. But is it past tense for us? No. No. But it is as far as God's concerned. It's done. It's happened. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans 4 when he said, The God who makes the dead alive and calls the things that do not yet exist as though they already do. It's calling things that haven't happened yet. or speaking about things that haven't happened yet, at least in our timeline, as though they already have because they kind of already have from his perspective. Um, that's also what Paul is talking about in Philippians when he says, I am sure of this very thing, that the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Once God has begun his work in you and he's begun his work in all of us, that started pretty much the moment he foreknew us, he's going to finish it. He's going to complete it. And that's also what the author of the letter of Hebrews was talking about when he said, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we must get rid of every weight and the sin that clings so closely and run with endurance the race set out for us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The one who began it and the one who's going to end it. Finish it. Okay. So, if you've been justified, you will be glorified. God will complete the work that he's begun in you. Um, he's the one who started and he will finish it until the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, next, Romans 31 to 34. You want to read What does David want to read? <laughs> okay. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore, it is also, is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us? Okay, so then... What shall we say about all these things? This again is like in conclusion, right? After all the things that we've seen, in light of everything that we've talked about, what can we conclude? And the conclusion is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Here again, I, we talked about this a week or so ago. I think that, that if would be better translated since because God is for us, right? That's that's the point that Paul has just made. God chose us before we created the world to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So God is for us. And so, since God is for us, who can be against us? Who can oppose us? That's obviously a rhetorical question. The answer is 
No one. There's absolutely no one who can oppose us. As Jesus said in uh, John 10, My sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them from my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them from my Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Which we're getting a little bit of ahead of, ahead of ourselves because this is how the chapter ends. But uh, my pastor, Brian, used to always say like the picture is we're in Jesus' hands and Jesus' hands is in God's hands and like once you're in there, there's no way to get out. You, nobody can get you out. You probably say so you can't get yourself out. You're in there, yeah. Anyway, so, but like I said, we're, that's, that's sort of the, how Paul's going to finish. For now, Paul is underlining and highlighting and like double underlining again the fact that our future is absolutely sealed. It is sure. There's no way, there's nothing that can take it away. If God was willing to give up his own son to make us his children, we can have absolute confidence that he will do everything else that he has promised to do for us. Indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? All things, the world, if you like. But more than that, forget opposing us. Paul says, who will even dare to bring a charge against us? If somebody wanted to charge us with something, accuse us of something, who would they have to bring that charge to? God, right? But it's God who chose us and predestined us and called us and justified us. You think he's interested in Satan's accusations against his dearly loved children? Yeah, not likely. But ultimately, God has given the responsibility of judging us to somebody else. Who? Jesus. Jesus. We've looked at that before, a bunch of places. God's given that responsibility to Jesus. So maybe Jesus can try his luck there, right? But probably not. Paul gives four reasons why that's not really going to work out either. He says, Christ is the one who died for us. Jesus is the one who died for us. As Jesus himself says, no one has greater love than this that one lay down his life for his friends. So there is no greater love than the love that Jesus has for us, the love that caused him to die for us. So again, it's unlikely that he's going to be interested in what Satan has to say against us. More than that, he was raised from the dead. You see, Jesus didn't just die so that maybe now he's like dead and out of the way and uh, perhaps there's somebody else who can condemn us. No, that Jesus who loved us, loved us so much that he died for us, was raised to life again. And if the dead Jesus loves us, you can believe that the alive Jesus loves us too. And as Paul said back in Romans 5, if while we were enemies with we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more since we have been reconciled will we 
we be saved by his life. Jesus reconciled us through his death. He's now alive and he's going to make sure that we're saved because he's alive. But that's not all. He is at the right hand of God. What's he doing there? Interceding for us. Well, that is one of the things he's doing. That's not all he's doing. Yeah, First John 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have a lawyer with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So Jesus is acting as our advocate, our lawyer. He's pleading our case on our behalf before his Father, the judge. So um, again, do you think our defense lawyer is going to condemn us? No, not likely. And then finally... He's also interceding for us. So like we said, he's not just pleading our case for us. He's actually pleading for us, begging for us. He's intervening on our behalf and pleading with the Father to have mercy on us. And he's good at it. In Hebrews 7, it says, And the others who became priests were numerous because death prevented them from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently since he lives forever. So he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he, is, he always lives to intercede for them. So then, who wants to read to the end? 35 to 39. Go for it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right. I love, love, love that passage. I cannot imagine a more triumphant, climactic crescendo to like crown these eight chapters. Um, who or what will separate us from the love of Jesus? Nothing, absolutely nothing. Somewhat reluctant even to discuss them because I think they're so beautiful and perfectly self-explanatory on their own. Um, but I'll make a couple of very brief observations. Firstly, in verse 35, Paul lists a whole bunch of different ways you can suffer. How many? Seven. Yeah, seven. So... Seven, seven as a number represents completeness. It's perfect, but perfect in the sense that there's nothing missing. It's complete. And so basically, these seven things represent every different kind of physical, earthly suffering you can imagine. Trouble, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. Paul then quotes Psalm 44, which says, 
For your sake, we encounter death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. In the West, we've enjoyed more peace and more freedom than basically anybody else in history. And so we probably can't relate to this all that well. But that verse describes the experience of most Christians in most places in most of history. It was like they'd been bred for the slaughter. And so, in other words, Paul says, we are going to suffer. But will any of that suffering separate us from God's love in Jesus? No way. Those are, those are part of the all things that God will work together for good in your life, right? Yeah. So he says, no. In all these things, we will have complete victory through him who loves us. So, okay. There's no earthly suffering that can separate us from God. So then Paul takes like a step backwards and expands his view even broader, wider. He says, okay, well, what about death or life or angels or demons or things that exist now or things that will happen in the future? Things that we haven't seen or maybe haven't even thought of yet. Or any spiritual powers or heights or depths. And he says, no, there is nothing that exists now, nor anything that could exist in the future that could ever, ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do we know that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God? It's because we killed God and then he forgave us. Even then. And so, what more can you do to him? And that's Romans chapter 8. And the first portion of the book of Romans. That's all the theory. From chapter 1 to chapter 8, Paul's full description of an explanation of our salvation of the gospel, of how it is that we're saved. And uh, when we come back, we'll look at chapters 9 through 11. So we said gets into more like uh, sort of prophetic focus and what's the deal with uh, Israel versus Gentiles and the church. And then the last four chapters is practical. How do we live? How do we treat each other? That kind of stuff. Cool. Any thoughts or comments? Questions? Cool. Shall we pray? Does anybody want to pray? Anybody got anything they want prayer for? All good? Did they end up finishing their work before Saturday? Yeah, I didn't mind that. Good. Good. Awesome. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, thank you so, so, so much for your unbelievable 
unconditional love. Lord, that there is absolutely nothing in all of creation that can separate us from your love. Lord, I thank you that you have sealed us and guaranteed our future by placing your spirit in us, Lord. And I ask that you would make each of us more aware of your leading and guiding in us, that we would be more aware of of your spirit in us, Lord, that we would have a more and more taste what it means to be a child of God, Lord, but that you would also stir in us that yearning and groaning for that future when we will see you as you are and we will be revealed for who we are as your sons and daughters. I ask that you be with us this week and through the next, through the holidays that are upcoming, Lord. It's a uh, plenty of uncertainty, but I thank you that in you we have certainty, Lord, and that our future is set. Um, and I ask that you would encourage us in this time, in that truth, Lord, that you'd be with us through Christmas, that it'd be a blessed time, um, a special time, and that you would keep us all safe and bring us back next year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.